You are listening to the Recovery Brand Podcast, the podcast that explores a range of mental health issues and their impacts, steps towards mental health recovery, and how we can continue to increase our quality of life. Just a short disclaimer, any opinions on this podcast are based on my own or my guests' personal experiences. The content discussed is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as medical advice. My name is Lachlan. I started the recovery brand, uh, started the website, and now we're getting on to our second episode of the podcast. The aim of this podcast is to explore with guests a range of mental health issues from different perspectives and how recovery can be managed to live a fulfilling life. Today, I'm going to be interviewing my mum, Susan Priest. Mum and I used to conduct workshops together, and I also worked in a psychiatric ward with mum. For our workshops, mum spoke from the carer perspective, and I spoke from the consumer perspective. Mum also worked as a carer peer worker at the psych ward, while I did diversional music therapy with the inpatients. Susan now works as family peer support worker for a youth mental health service and All Up has been a carer peer worker and advocate for 10 years and is passionate about mental health recovery. Welcome Susan. Thank you. So just some statistics um, about caregivers before we get into it. So according to ABS, the typical caregiver for person living with a mental health condition is female, aged 35 to 54 years old, Australian born, lives on a government pension or allowance and cares for someone with a profound or severe disability. Now 15% of Australian adults are mental health carers, 71% of carers experience depression, 63% experience anxiety. Susan, in your experience, who are carers? Well, carers um, of people who have a mental health issue are not personal carers, as you would some people think of um, when they hear the word carer. Um, Carer means someone who supports or walks alongside and um, helps someone who has a mental health issue. And um, they can be uh, anywhere from parents or partners, ex-partners, Siblings, offspring, which mean they have a parent with a mental health issue. They might be friends or neighbours or many of the above. They might have, a, hopefully have a whole team of carers on your side when you're going through um, a mental health issue. They tend to be demographically um, middle-aged mothers. But um, generally, um, they, they can be anyone uh, as long as they have the best interest of the person at heart. And really, it's all about who the consumer also identifies as their carer. So someone that they feel really supports them as well. Okay. And can you explain a little bit about your work? What exactly do you do as a family peer support worker? As a family peer support worker, I guess it's about walking alongside people because you've had the same similar lived experience as they've had of caring for someone who's been unwell. So I try and um, uh, support families who, it's mainly families where I work, who have a young person who's unwell usually living with them at home. And, but I have worked also in the adult mental health sector where um, the consumer may be living away from home but their main carer could still be a parent, um, an elderly parent. I think the 
face of caring is really changing. Um, in the statistics that you were quoting a minute ago, it, used, it was more uh, the elderly mother who was the carer of an adult consumer. But now with the younger generation coming through and with better services, better medication, um, we're seeing a group of carers who are staying more in their own life. By what that I mean that they're not becoming professional carers or full-time carers of their loved one, but they're actually caring um, and they might need to care more intensively at some points than others, but they're also um, keeping up their, maybe their job, their volunteering role, their relationships um, apart from the caring role. So I think that's a big shift in, in um, what, we, what we know as carers. Okay. And so what are some of your observations of the families that first present to you? Well, my experience, particularly with psychosis, but my experience as well as many people that I work with, is that um, they like a deer caught in the headlights. Um, so it's really a, a sort of a, a response of shock and awe, distress, not knowing what's going on. Because even though you may have been seeing some unusual signs for a while, um, it doesn't mean that you're automatically thought, oh, this is a psychotic episode coming on because you don't know what you don't know. So if it happens again, you might be more prepared. Hopefully you will. But the first time, it's very much of um, a shocked uh, and, and grief-stricken, uh, really, um, response. There's also can be a response of guilt, uh, and this is also verified by the research where families, particularly parents, feel they've done something wrong and that's why the young person's become unwell. Um, the other thing is that both the family and the young person or the person who's unwell um, may not have had much experience with psychiatric services, so it's all very confronting for them. Um, it, it, and also with the um, it, for a young person, they may have not had any experience with a hospital or a or ambulances or any of the other things that go with health services generally. So families often feel a lot of fear about the future, what what will look like, how it will affect their lives as well as the life of the person who's unwell. There are other families, though, who have been grinding away with um, with living with a mental health issue in, in their loved one and it's they're quite burnt out by the time they get to see me. Um, and, and that can be a real struggle sometimes because... Sometimes they're so burnt out they don't want to attend to their own care at all. They haven't got the energy to be look after themselves. And they also may just not want anything to do with the consumer anymore because they're so tired. So they can, that can be another tricky way that carers present. But usually um, the ones I see are in, in a state of shock. Right. And so what do you think carers need and want? I think in information on mental health issues, they want information, they want emotional support and they want knowledge about how to manage the situation. Sometimes that means they want to fix the situation, which isn't always the, the way forward. But um, I think that, that certainly those three points sum my expectations up, um, what I wanted. And it also is reflected in the literature. So, for example... Um, wanting to know more about the mental health condition, maybe wanting to have a diagnosis, even though that's not always given routinely at the beginning. 
supporting um, them emotionally and how to move forward. Um, some carers may not realise it, but they do actually need some support around grief and loss issues because when you have hopes and dreams for a person, whether it's your child or your partner or even a parent, um, you often feel like those hopes and dreams have been dashed by someone having a diagnosis of, of a mental illness. So I think it's, um, yeah, that can, be, that can be really hard. And so I think grief and loss issues are something that people can um, need some support with. And that can often be um, gained through the mental health care plan, through their GP, um, getting some psychological support around that. Um, and they might just be really tired from all the caring they've been doing already leading up to an episode of being un of someone being unwell. They might also feel stigmatised and isolated and sometimes by uh, us working with those families, realising that it's actually quite normal in these circumstances to have all those feelings, that they feel that they can come out of their shell a bit more and not feel so isolated and that in fact um, some of the stigma they're experiencing is the stigma they've placed upon themselves that often other people aren't thinking that those things um, about them at all. Okay so now we're getting into the nitty-gritty um, of the podcast. How has mental illness impacted your life? Um, it is a huge impact on, it had a huge impact on my life um, when you became unwell, but I think it impacts the whole family. Um, the whole, I think, sort of microcosm of the family shifts and changes. Um, and I think there was a lot of, for me, a lot of grief and loss issues around what might happen to you in the future. Um, would you be able to... Um, have a recovery that meant that you could have an education, have a job, have good relationships um, in the future. So for a mother, I think that's a very common um, reaction. Um, it impacted me in that I didn't know whether I should leave my job and become a full-time carer because that that's about 20 years ago. So in those days, there was that sort of feeling around that you could do that. Um, and I didn't know whether that was the right thing to do or not, so that put into jeopardy my my career. Um, and by the way, I didn't, and I think that was the right right move for me. Um, and I think the also um, my beliefs about mental illness. Um, I'd only I've been brought up in the era of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and seeing a mother-in-law who was extremely unwell and. Um, her quality of life I thought was fairly poor so I was worried about what the chances were of recovery so for me I just had a whole lot of questions that were unanswered and um, um, I was very frightened I guess yeah and well I went in to hospital in 2002 so that's a good 18 years now um, have things changed, do you feel, that since since I went in? I think there's been some fantastic changes um, and I think that, you know, you've really benefited from those, some of those changes and so have, have we as a family. I think the medication hasn't moved as quickly as I would have hoped it would. It has in the areas of, of anxiety and depression but 
in the areas of um, psychosis, I, I think I would have liked to have seen the medications become more targeted by this stage. Um, however, they're a lot better than they were 20 years ago. I think um, services are a lot better. For example, where I work, we see ourselves now as a one-stop shop. So whereas in uh, before a mother or the primary carer would be the de facto case manager, now you have um, services where the, the consumer can tap into all the things they need um, and the carer can really um, sit back and take a little bit of a breather from that work. So I think that's been a fabulous um, movement forward. So I think there's a lot more awareness. There's, I think there's less stigma. There's less isolation for carers and consumers. Um, so yes, I think things have really, really improved. And I think there's been a huge awareness campaign across the community to make mental ill health um, another health issue, but not as stigmatised a health issue as it was in the past. Okay. And so with my first episode back in 2002, um, how early did you notice something changing? Uh, did you notice triggers and warning signs? I did. Um, I noticed things different, but I didn't know what they were. So I noticed you became more talkative, you became more energetic, you were sleeping less. But I thought these were all actually quite positive things. Um, so... I didn't know what I didn't know. So whereas the second and third episode, I could see things um, deteriorating symptom-wise. Um, but I, in the first time, I didn't understand what mania was. I didn't understand um, how that affected a person. So for me, I wasn't able to, I guess, be a warning sign. And by the time we did get the support, your insight has, was... Um, so diminished that that we couldn't sort of stop the uh, the episode. Uh, your father was the first one to see it because his mother had um, a very severe mental illness, so he was much more attuned to the early signs. So he was great and called the, a mental health service um, on your behalf, and so that was that was good. So I think though. And we were talking about this last night with some carers that looking for a relapse signature is a really helpful thing to do once someone is in treatment so that everyone in the family can acknowledge what triggers you have. Um, and I think what was really helpful for me is when you gave us permission to um, get involved if you thought, we saw anything that was deteriorating because often you didn't quite have the insight to see those things. So that was very helpful. I think though that it can lead, um, it can lead to some family members, particularly people like me who is a control freak, um, would, it means that we become more hypervigilant and anxious than we should. So for example, one weekend on a Friday, you were very angry and I thought, oh no, he's having another episode. And so I put the cat team on high alert and, um, ask them to call in every day, etc. Um, and then on Monday, you just said to me, well, I was just angry. So in other words, it wasn't a pattern. It was a one-off and everyone's allowed to have a one-off angry day. So I think I was over, um, I was too vigilant. So I think it's important that we carers are given support to be able to balance that out 
you've got to remember too, nearly 20 years ago, I didn't have the support that carers get now. Um, so I think maybe I would have been a lot less um, dramatic person if I'd uh, had some more support. Yeah. So it's really important then to look for patterns over one-off, that kind of symptom conscious um, patterns are really, yeah, uh, uh, much better to look for. Mm. And so was there a tipping point? Was there a time when you noticed that I had really... Like at first you said that um, you thought that I was just a happy, being happy and mm-hmm. um, these were all positive things and that's typical of the hypermanic stage in um, with bipolar. But was there, yeah, was there a tipping point where you go, something's really not right here? I think for me it was when you started to abscond more, you started to stay away from home a lot more and you were all over the streets and we didn't know where you were and I think that's when I started to, you know, people were ringing up and saying, oh, we've just seen Lachlan somewhere and um, we didn't know where you were. So it was out of character. Um, So I think that's what, for me, started to get me anxious. But I was in denial. I didn't want to believe that anything was really, really wrong and so um, it was great that your dad worked that all out and took took that up as his challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I could imagine with first episodes especially that navigating the mental health system can be really tricky and could be really um, overwhelming. Um, Did you find it easier during my second episode? It was definitely easier because we had, you know, um, your your notes were all in the one mental health service so we could call Mm -hmm. in and say, hey, you know, um, we've sort of been before definitely we noticed your things like selling your your possessions and giving things away which was feature of your first episode but the second episode we then tagged that as something that was yeah that's not that's not good um so yeah so we did seem to pick up a few of those things um and you started to abscond more and and also it was hard to slow you down and, and sort of I guess talk reason to you um yeah. during that episode so that was yeah we did notice it but it doesn't mean it was easier to catch yeah and the i guess the complete lack of insight to get to that stage it's that's right and that's why many services including the one i work for keep um people for about two years so that they can if there is a relapse in that those first you know months and that they can sort of pick it up and keep an eye on it Whereas we were out of the mental health system by your second episode, so we had to sort of, we were on our own monitoring that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And so on to the management and recovery. Um, how did you manage self-care during the hard times? Did you have any coping strategies? Um, I think one of the things we did um, was that, yeah, your dad took long service leave so I could stay in work. And work was... And, and Kara say this to me that often their work is a, an escape from the um, the demands of being a carer. So that was a really good thing to keep me connected with the world outside the home. Um, I think um, for me, sourcing friends and family who were helpful, and there can be family and friends who are unhelpful um, during these times, and to know which ones to 
divulge information to you and which ones not to is really helpful because mm. you see a carer becomes a bit of a gateway to the community, a gate, sorry, a gatekeeper to the community. Yeah. And so I was often being called up and asked lots of questions about your health and that I didn't really want to get into and I was exhausted around. Um, so I had to be careful about how um, broadly I just divulge things and also out of respect for you and, and myself, I needed to um, control that a bit. Um, so that was another coping strategy about who to use. We were privileged to have a lot of friends who had studied psychology or, or understood mental health issues, plus family members who had had mental health issues in their own family. So there was no, um, no one really in our lives who disputed what was going on. But there are people who, who have really troublesome relatives and friends who tell them that it's a whole lot of rubbish and they should just, you know, just ignore it. Yeah. So we were, we were lucky to have good, good support that way. Um, I think looking forward and not looking back was really good um, because looking back to the good old days of, you know, families talk to me about, oh, we've just got to get him back to that when he was 16 or whatever. But when something really traumatic has happened to you, um, whether you're a consumer or a carer, um, looking, looking forward and, and reinventing your life is what really is, is powerful. Um, yeah. It's no point going back because that's not who you are anymore. So I think um, trying to think about the way forward was really important. Um, yeah. yeah, I think also the thing that, that I did and a lot of people do is that if you could imagine someone's recovery, a really good recovery is usually starts at one point and you can imagine a graph in a zigzag line going from left to right up the page. And so in other words, we want someone to get the best quality of life as they go, but it'll be bumpy. There's rarely a, a recovery that I know of where people go from um, zero to hero and there's no problems in between. Yeah. Um, so if you could imagine a carer recovery being um, sort of modelling or going exactly the same route so that when, for example, um, you had a bad day, I had a bad day. When you had a good day, I had a bad, good day. And so families report that a lot to me, that the mood, the mood um, and health of their loved one dictates their mood and health. So I think it's really important, and I wish someone had said this to me 18 years ago, to try and disassociate from your recovery because your recovery is your recovery. It's your job um, to recover. And I can only be there to support you in whatever way I can. And I need to get on with my own life. And I think that's, that's really important when you think about coping strategies. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what does, I mean, you're talking about the graph with care and recovery. What else does care recovery look like for you? And what would you like it to look like for um, your clients? I think the three reasons for carer self-care are really important because if you don't have the background reasons to look after yourself, you usually won't. Because particularly for parents, um, our job is sort of to go down with the ship. You know, we, we are there to protect and love and nurture our children and often we put ourselves second to that role. Yeah. 
But if you think about the three reasons that I think there are for looking after yourself as a carer, firstly, it's for your own sake. And that's because life goes on. And in fact, when, you're, when your loved one uh, gets, it gets significantly better and gets on with their own life, you need to still have your life to enter back into. So not giving up everything for the caring role. Um, and also because you have other relationships that are important. For example, I had two daughters, I had a husband, I had ageing parents. There were people that I also had other responsibilities to. So it's important to keep some energy for them as well. Um, the second reason to look after yourself is that no consumer that I know likes being micromanaged or monitored by a carer. Um, and I hear some incredible stories of of families who have just given up everything um, for their loved one. And I don't, I don't think, or at least you've said to me, that that's not something you want carers to do for you, that, that you want to get on with your own recovery and that um, you'll ask for help when you need it. So I think it's important for the consumer that the carer doesn't um, take the caring role too seriously. And thirdly, I think the other reason, and this is something that carers don't often realise till I say it to them, but actually what you're doing when you get on with your own life is that you are modelling a healthy lifestyle. So, for example, healthy people get up and they go to work of a morning or they shower, they, um, they have a volunteer job or they have relationships, they go out to coffee, they go for exercise and they eat well. Um, so they're the sorts of things that healthy people do. So when you're doing that, you're modelling um, a healthy lifestyle to the person who might be so unwell they're still in bed a lot and are not feeling that they want to do anything but at least they know that there's a world out there that that um, is healthy and they want to rejoin at some point. Yeah. And so this is the advice you'd give to, say, a carer who yeah. would really, really be struggling. Yeah, because even out. though it doesn't say, you know, you should join a yoga group or you should... You know, I'm not mm. I'm not dictating what they should do because they know what helps them feel better. Yeah. What I'm saying is this is the rationale behind why you should do this. And if you keep those three things in mind, then you will start to um, source things that make you feel better as a person. Yeah, yeah. And so your lived experience um, showing that, that you have this lived experience and displaying it to carers is incredibly important for them i think well. so yeah i think so i'm i um i don't been, share you've been through it so to speak or you've been you know, not it's all every everybody's journey is unique but um yeah yeah to some degree yeah and i mean i'm dealing with people who's you know they've had a child who's suicided and yeah or on the edge of suicide you know they're in t some of them are in really really bad state so Obviously, yeah. I don't come in and say, you know, it's time for you to go and do this and go and do that. Do this and do, yeah, yeah exactly. so, you, you know, you, yeah. you time, it's all about timing with any sort of recovery. But I think um, the fact that I'm still going and I still have a good relationship with you and other people in my family and my friends shows that there is can be a life after caring, you know, yeah. and so I hope that that's a positive message. Yeah, one thing I've learned when uh, I was doing my... Um, counseling diploma is that we're human beings before we're human doings mm -hmm. and so we need to be in this situation where we work in um, this type of industry we, we need to be both and um, so active listening plays a really 
really key part when, and just sitting in that space with um, clients when they first present. I think that's, yeah, that's, um, that's great you do that. Um, so, yeah, the other thing I also think about is, is um, when you're on an airline and we're on an airplane and the safety instructions and they, when the masks come down and they say, the oxygen mask, they say, look after yourself, put the mask on yourself before you put the mask on your baby. And I really think that's, I use that analogy in uh, my own work with my clients um, because a lot of them give and give and give and then they just start, um, they're working on half a tank and they're working on, or they just, you know, they exhaust themselves. And I think the carer, it's a really good analogy for carers, um, is that you've got to look after yourself, otherwise you won't have the um, energy to look after the one, your loved one also mm, so absolutely. um and you and i work together and we've seen the, the despair on carers faces and they just look absolutely spent and so self-care is a big um a big one to talk about during those workshops that we did yeah um now for this question would you give it back would you give back all the pain and struggle if you could I was hoping you wouldn't ask this question, but since you have, I would say yes and no. Um, I would not give it back because it's changed me um, forever. It's changed me as a person. So, um, And I'm not sure how I would have got to such depths of understanding in, in certain areas of my life without this having happened to me. So... It is true that, you know, good things can come out of bad situations. Um, so I think I've really learned a lot about um, humans and compassion and incredible resilience and courage that people um, have to recover, whether they're a consumer or a carer. So I'm grateful that I've learned that and it's really humbled me. So I'm, I'm really grateful but as a parent, I would say still I would not want it to happen to myself or anyone else, any other parent, because when you see someone you love in in um, in a bad shape, um, and that goes for any disease or illness or um, bad situation, um, I would rather that not have happened to us. But um, I guess it's just really up to what you do with that what you do with that experience in the end. And I think as a family, we've all grown through it and it's left its scars. It, it, we will always have scars from it, all of us, um, in different ways, but we've gone a long way to, to managing it with no blame to anyone because that's just something that's happened to us. And so I think I, as a parent, I would definitely not want it to happen to myself or anyone else, but I, um, I'm now glad that I've learnt certain things on the journey. Yeah. Yeah, good answer. So that ends uh, this podcast. Um, it's been a real delight for me to be able to interview my mum. Um, she has such a wealth of experience and knowledge um, in this field. And... Um, yeah, it's always been it's always great working with mum. It's been it's been a while since we worked together on something. 
um, in the mental health field. The privilege is so. all mine. <laughs> um, so if this has raised any issues for any of um, our listeners, there are a couple of numbers I have here. Uh, one is the Carer Gateway, which you could call. Um, that's the 1-800-422-737. And the other one is the Mind Australia Carer Helpline. And that's one 555 If you'd like to get in touch about the carer perspective or any other mental health issues or would like to share your story, you can contact me at hello at recoverybrand.com.au. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.